This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 73. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And even President Obama is angry. I just sat in the Oval Office with both of the men who are running for president. I never expected that my successor would embrace my vision or continue my policies. I did hope, for the sake of our country, that Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously. That he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. But he never did. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work. No interest in finding common ground. No interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. No interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show that he can use to get the attention he craves. Powerful words from Obama this week. A powerful warning. And that's about as angry as he gets. But he's definitely angry in his own way because he's paying attention and he wants you to pay attention. And hopefully, you've been paying attention to the Democratic National Convention. And hopefully, you'll be paying attention to the Republican National Convention, too. I know it's summer. And I know baseball, the NBA, the NHL, and just about every sport on the planet are finally on now. But meanwhile, in politics, stakes is high. And they've never been higher. The virus is on a rampage. Our allies are deeply concerned. Our enemies are celebrating. And President Mayhem continues to do what he does. I greet people coming yeah. back home. Now, nobody's been killed there in a long time. Do you notice in Afghanistan, you haven't... You know, nobody's been killed in Afghanistan in a long time. Nobody's been killed there in a long time? He really said that. On Fox News, of course. And of course, he's wrong. Two U.S. soldiers died in Afghanistan just last month. Specialist Vincent Sebastian Iberia, 21, from San Antonio, died on July 3rd. And First Lieutenant Joseph Trent Alba, 24 years old, from Folsom, California, died on July 12th. They died in Afghanistan, and either President Mayhem doesn't know or doesn't want you to know. Either way, he's sick, and the sickness is getting worse and worse by the day. 
This week, President Mayhem is attacking Goodyear tires. Goodyear, another American institution. Goodyear, after the post office, after Harley-Davidson, after General Motors, after the NFL, after the FBI, he's doing what he does. And maybe that includes listening to this show. With your defense secretary, Mark Esper, do you have confidence in his leadership there? Mark Yesper? Did you call him Yesper? Oh, okay. Some people call him Yesper. No, I get along with him. I get along with him fine. He's fine. Okay. Yeah, no problem. I consider firing everybody. (laughs) So now even Trump is calling Defense Secretary Mark Esper Yesper. And Trump is now further humiliating Esper for humiliating himself for Trump. This entire administration is a disgusting, circular firing squad. Trump probably does consider firing everybody. Everybody except himself. But this month, millions of Americans are considering firing him and hiring Joe Biden. In just over 70 days, America will decide the fate of our nation. We'll decide if our country thrives or continues to die. In 70 days, we determine if the great American experiment continues or fails. In 70 days, we decide whether or not to fire Donald Trump. And the Democrats and Republicans will both make their cases with their conventions, their weird, virtual, poorly produced, occasionally inspiring, hardly watched conventions. Look, I've been to every Democratic National Convention and Republican National Convention since 2004. And before an election that's never meant more, these two conventions have never meant less. Most people have made up their minds. Most people aren't even watching. This year, the conventions have to compete with Major League Baseball, the NHL, and the NBA. And ratings are down as much as 50% over four years ago. But the conventions are still important and reason to be inspired, but also reason to be angry. The conventions have me angry, have others angry, and there are some elements that should have everyone angry. Just about every speech by a politician in this format kind of feels like the opposition party response to the State of the Union. Now, the Dems have rolled out celebrities to MC, celebrities like Eva Longoria, Tracy Ellis Ross, Kerry Washington, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, which is smart and made this weird and flat format more watchable by a little bit. And there are some flashes of hope and inspiration and dashes of stupidity and tone deafness. For example, Republican former New Jersey Governor Christy Todd Whitman spoke. A lot of Republicans spoke, but Christy Todd Whitman spoke and lost all credibility forever when she told me, Rob, Sarah, and countless other 9-11 first responders that the air was safe for us to breathe at ground zero. So she didn't do much for me. And there were familiar faces, of course, like Amy Klobuchar, which was boring. And after seeing her a few dozen times, all you Democrats and really all Americans should be very happy that Kamala Harris is Biden's VP pick and not her. Andrew Yang was initially not speaking in the convention at all, which was a mistake, and one the DNC later corrected to feature him in the final night. In between, he'll be on CNN all week. 
And I'm generally not a fan of Bernie Sanders. If you listen to this pod, you know that. But he gave a pretty effective speech, especially the part about President Mayhem's authoritarianism. It was surprisingly and uncharacteristically moderate by Sanders standards, but still too long. And he had firewood behind him the whole time, which was a distraction and annoying because I'm not ready for winter yet. But I was ready for Michelle Obama. We were all ready for Michelle Obama. And I love Michelle Obama. She's one of the few leaders that I've met in politics that I'd actually work for. And she gave an excellent speech. Going high means unlocking the shackles of lies and mistrust with the only thing that can truly set us free. The cold, hard truth. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. It is what it is. And what it was, was a brilliant speech. But even that one, I wish came harder. I wish they all came harder because this format really didn't do it justice. It's a very hard thing they're all trying to do without a real convention. It all just feels flat. And there's lots of big news that wasn't big news, like the fact that General Colin Powell spoke. Now, most Republicans and independents have basically considered Powell a Democrat since he endorsed Barack Obama in 2008. General Mattis or former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates would have been much bigger news. But General Colin Powell, it was, following former Secretary of State and Vietnam veteran John Kerry. You likely didn't see that I was on MSNBC at about 1.35 a.m. with Ari Melber from my garage in my shorts to break down the Democratic Convention's focus on national security. Now, bringing back John Kerry and featuring him in that slot, I think, was a mistake. John Kerry is a look backward. He got out of the military about 40 years ago. General Colin Powell got out of the military about 20 years ago. And the Dems are much better off looking forward, not back, especially on national security. They have lots of young leaders that could have been in this slot, and they could have gone for people like Admiral McRaven. But instead, they pushed out Kerry and Colin Powell, which felt like a flashback to the Iraq War, instead of a recognition that we're in a whole new battlefield. And this supposed national security focus really didn't focus on the fact that the Bidens are actually a military family, a Blue Star family. Their son, Bo, served in Iraq. And Joe Biden thinks that that service may have actually caused Bo's cancer due to burn pit exposure. So Tuesday's convention was supposed to focus on national security, and it did a bit for a whole 15 minutes. And overall, it was a missed opportunity. The Dems would have been smart to highlight the fact that veterans are being decimated by the coronavirus, that the VA data is abysmal and testing has been atrocious. They didn't mention the fact that the VA didn't release COVID-19 testing numbers for 12 days. We don't even know how many vets died. This while President Mayhem continues to attack the post office, which is an attack on our vets, our troops, our democracy, and the very fabric of our country. But politicizing our troops is not something only done by Republicans. We saw that at the convention this week, when American Samoa delivered its delegate votes at the DNC convention with two uniformed service members in the background, which is a problem. 
a big problem. The DNC should know better than to have troops in uniform in the background. It's not cool. It's not allowed. And now these two E4 specialists have gotten the attention of their chain of command and the national media because our troops are not supposed to be political props. Our uniforms are not supposed to be politicized by either party. So Trump isn't the only one who politicizes our troops. And even if the soldiers didn't know better, the DNC does or should know better. This is why you need people who understand the military around your politics. You can dismiss something like this, but our military is supposed to be divided from our politics. We're not a banana republic. And now we know the DOD is investigating. As for the rest of the convention, Bill Clinton spoke and was boring and old. Jill Biden was very solid. An incredible intro video and then powerful images of a speech from her inside an old classroom where she used to be a teacher. It was a great speech, incredibly real and an authentic delivery. And I've been around Dr. Biden quite a few times. She's the real deal. And I think she'd be an outstanding first lady. There were segments about the environment and about school shootings and about sexual assault. And there was a performance by Billie Eilish, the great musician. Now, all these segments are really about one thing. Turnout. Every environmental voter or Billie Eilish fan that the DNC can turn out goes to Biden. And that's a good strategy. They could do the same thing with marijuana if they weren't scared. If they focused on marijuana, if they focused on the legalization of marijuana and support for cannabis, that would bring people to the polls. But the Democrats won't because they're scared. But they weren't scared to roll out Hillary Clinton again, which was boring. And it reminded us all of what a weak candidate she was. There was an undeniably badass Speaker Pelosi intro video. There was a speech by Chuck Schumer in front of the Statue of Liberty. There were lots of videos of people you'd never heard of. And there was a big speech by Barack Obama. And Barack Obama hit Trump hard by Obama standards. Obama's always been a better explainer than a fighter. And despite the praise from everyone in the media, I thought Obama's speech felt a little flat. It was Barack Obama's worst convention speech of his life. But in fairness, it was still fantastic because he's given three of the best convention speeches in history in the last three conventions. And then there was the nomination speech by Kamala Harris, which was historic and inspiring, not just for Democrats, but for America and for the future of the American dream. My mother taught me that service to others gives life purpose and meaning. And oh, how I wish she were here tonight, but I know she's looking down on me from above. I keep thinking about that 25-year-old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America. After it ended, there was no convention center full of people to applaud. But we should all applaud that moment. More than any other night of the Democratic Convention, we should all hope the world was watching Kamala Harris. That nomination represented hope. It represented diversity. It represented tenacity. 
It represented the future of America instead of the past. It also likely represented the high point of this weird convention. And the final night, a lot of folks will start their weekend early. Basketball will be on again. And Pete Buttigieg, Tammy Duckworth, and Mike Bloomberg will speak. And of course, Joe Biden. Joe Biden's number one goal right now is not to die. If he does that this summer, he wins. And we all win. But there was one part that did universally appeal. The call of the roll is always my favorite part of both conventions for the Democrats and the Republicans. And in this new format, it was actually awesome. It could have been awesome or it could have been a disaster. But overall, the roll call was great. Despite the bumpy ending with the weird applause and the little Hollywood Squares boxes. And there was a fun celebration of Rhode Island and fried calamari. But if the RNC is Spartan next week, They'll do it a lot like the Democrats, and they'll make every state celebrate a food because it was a great reflection of the tapestry of America. Former President Jimmy Carter, who spoke, once called America not a melting pot, but a beautiful mosaic. And that's what it is. And at their best, that's what the conventions are. And at their best, they're about stories of courage and patriotism that transcend partisanship. Like the speech from former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who was shot in the head, but still fights on and continues to represent the best of what this country is all about, regardless of party. I've known the darkest of days, days of pain and uncertain recovery. But confronted by despair, I've summoned hope. Confronted by paralysis and aphasia, I responded with grit and determination. I put one foot in front of the other. I found one word and then I found another. My recovery is a daily fight, but fighting makes me stronger. Words once came easily, today I struggle to speak. But I have not lost my voice. American needs all of us to speak out even when you have to fight to find the words we are at a crossroads we can let the shooting continue or we can act we can protect our families our future we can vote when i say look for the helpers i mean leaders like gabby giffords i've met some inspiring american heroes in my days But Gabby Giffords is one of the greatest of our time. And she's what's best about the conventions and about America. But overall, the Democratic convention has been a letdown for me. And most of all, a missed opportunity. If you're really, truly blown away by the last few nights of the Democratic convention, you're probably a Democrat. I really don't think this week is blowing away independents and certainly not Republicans. And I appreciate hope. But hope is not a course of action. I want Trump out more than just about anything in the world. And that's why I want the Democrats to be better. And every time I criticized it on Twitter, I caught fire from liberals. And the intense defensiveness and euphoria from Democrats that I've seen is part of the reason why Trump won. And there were many echoes from this time four years ago. But Trump is much worse than four years ago. That, the Republican National Convention coming up, and Trump himself should deliver a victory to the Dems despite themselves. It's theirs to lose right now. 
No one should be celebrating anything yet. It's no time to be spiking the football, as football begins minicamp and tries to struggle back to life. So as you digest the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention, this episode, I'm mixing it up a bit. And after 72 episodes, I need a break. No shit. Doing these shows, especially with two little kids in the house and a pandemic, has been an ass kicker for me and for my family and my team. And we need to mix it up a bit before the big fall push into the election. And it's also my son's birthday week. So I'll be doing lots of swimming, lots of playing with trucks, maybe some fishing, lots of pancake eating, and lots of octonauts watching. Octonauts to your stations. The Octonauts are some pretty important, inspiring, iconic, and awesome underwater heroes. They are my son's favorite show and my favorite of my son's shows, and I'm going to be watching that a bit. So I'm bringing back one of our most popular and most important conversations ever with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who you'll see featured at the Democratic Convention in a big way. He's not the candidate for president, but he represents the future of the Democratic Party and maybe the future of American politics. And he's been especially appealing to independents and even some Republicans. And I sat down with him at the end of last year, at the height of his rise, before our first ever studio audience at the Classic Car Club in Manhattan, before the pandemic, for a conversation about service, leadership, politics, and the future. Good political conventions should be about the future. And our conversation with Mayor Pete was about the future. It was one of the longest, most candid interviews he did during the entire campaign. We talked about his Navy service, his favorite drink, whether or not he'll have kids, why he thought he could beat Trump at the time, and what he'd do if he lost the nomination. If you've heard this conversation before, you're going to want to hear it again now with the added benefit of the last eight months of history. If you've never heard it, no matter what party you claim or no party at all, I think you'll find it interesting and important and inspiring. And I hope it inspires you to pay attention. And in these long days before the end of the election, I hope it inspires you to stay vigilant, to stay frosty, and to stay focused on the future and to... Explore! Rescue! Protect! Yeah, that's right. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 73. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first ever Angry Americans event with our very special guest, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Thank you. So, people have come from literally all across America to see you for this first ever event. And first off, I just want to say thank you. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, And I said it backstage, but thank you for being an inspiration. I really think you're inspiring people of all backgrounds across this country beyond politics. You know, we were both in the military and, and your leadership example and the way you've carried yourself and the way you've uh, redefined leadership, I think is really important. I appreciate and, that. And I don't normally start off the interview with a ton of compliments, but, <laughs> I'll uh, take it. but I think it's, it's well-deserved and, and we're That's grateful. Um, the first question I usually ask of all guests, and I'll ask of you, Mayor Pete, is what is your drink of choice? Your adult, your adult beverage of choice, as we sometimes say in the military, and your team told me McAllen. 
Yeah, I love a, I love a good single malt. So McAllen, uh, I mean, making me pick one is difficult because uh, uh, I like the smokier ones too. I've been uh, renewing my relationship with Talisker from the Isle of Skye, which is pretty good stuff. But this uh, uh, this is always a good way to end the day. So. Do you do you remember when you got home from Afghanistan? What the first drink you had was? Oh, that's a great question. Um, they, we stopped over in Germany on the way back and kind of eased us back in with beer. Good German beer because we were in, we were somewhere in Bavaria, I think. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember being damn glad to have it. <laughs> we will jump around and talk a little bit about current events, but we're sitting here right now uh, on the west side of Manhattan. And uh, as you were coming in, there was some doubt about whether or not you'd be able to make it in because they had shut down uh, the Holland Tunnel. Uh, there is a shooting in Jersey City, which is like six miles as the crow flies from where we are right now. Um, I know you're still getting up to speed, but I think it's a timely and important topic to start with because this show is about uh, so many people in this country that feel like they don't have a voice. Yeah. Many people who are independent and unaffiliated and right. Democrats and Republicans. And they're angry because they're paying attention. And it's a righteous anger and they want to do something positive about that. And I don't think there's any issue that defines this community and maybe uh, presents a chance to unify this country like shootings. Yeah. Um, so any, any top line reactions or, or yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, as we speak, information's still coming in, but uh, it appears that at least one officer was lost. And, and it's a reminder of, of the dangers that uh, officers and first responders face every day. Uh, don't know that much about the other circumstances, but it's also part of a pattern where uh, we have come to accept being the only developed country where things like this happen on a routine basis. And the really unfortunate thing is this has been treated as a partisan issue. Uh, and it's very much a partisan issue in Congress. It's really not that partisan of, of an issue among the American people, at least when it comes to the basics around gun violence, uh, the importance of programs to reduce and prevent gun violence, uh, the importance of universal background checks for guns and red flag laws when somebody's a danger. This is something that not only a vast majority of Americans, but a vast majority of Republicans and a vast majority of gun owners agree with a vast majority of Democrats that we ought to do these things. And it, anytime you see something commands such a majority among the American people. We got to do something here and fail to get a majority among the American members of Congress. It shows you that something is warped or twisted in our system. I think the tide is turning because I think America has had enough. And a lot of the, the arguments are, are starting to kind of fade away before the simple fact that we know there are steps we could take that would save lives, not every life, but save thousands of lives in this country. And we've got to do something. And, and there's no excuse to just wring our hands and say, we, we got to keep tolerating uh, living in a country where, uh, unfortunately, these kinds of incidents, whether it's a mass shooting or the kinds of day-to-day -day shootings that are uh, uh, taking lives in communities around the country, including my own, uh, or the the side of gun violence that gets talked about far too little, which is suicide. Uh, we we just can't go on the way we're going right now. So you are the second candidate to join us on Angry Americans. The first was Tulsi Gabbard, the only other post 9-11 veteran, the only other person who served in uniform that's running for president. So I credit both of you for leading by example, coming on this show, but also you know, driving a conversation and redefining what it means to be a veteran. And I want to get into that with you, Mayor. But when you think about that issue in particular, um, many veterans are gun owners, but many veterans also understand guns and understand the role that, that they can play responsibly and counterproductively in our, in our society. Right. Are, are we as veterans in a unique position to be bridge builders 
on this issue because of that familiarity? And personally, you know, how do you view um, your service as shaping your perspective on gun ownership and the extension of it on everything from mass shootings to, to suicide? Yeah, I'll say this. From the first moment that uh, they took me to the armory for the first time, and as you know, there's a ton of paperwork and everything's under tight control, you learn that two things are associated with firearms in the military. Uh, one of them is accountability and responsibility. And the other one is is control uh, and making sure that you know what you're doing, you know what happens uh, to and with uh, weapons, that you know how to use them uh, at every stage in terms of your own personal responsibility to handle weapons responsibly. Uh, and in terms of the fact that the Army, Navy, you name it, the military as an institution, uh, makes sure that nothing is kind of falls through the cracks. I mean, I can't think of a more uptight uh, part, uh, e- even relative to the way the intelligence community I was part of can be uh, about uh, a lot of different things. Um, the, the, just the rigor of the expectations in and around the armory that everything is by the book, I think reflects the fact that there's an awareness that, that with this kind of deadly force comes a huge amount of responsibility. And I think responsible gun owners uh, in, in the civilian world in America, as a general rule, understand that. And it's why in families, uh, uh, it's so important to make sure that there is responsible storage, uh, that there is education about responsibility. And yet, even though we do that in the military, uh, families should, and as a general rule, do that at home. Uh, you don't see that happening in our broader American family uh, as a country, where we would, in the same way that that, that a unit would or, or that, a, that an individual should, say, wait a minute, like, these kinds of, of uh, firearms shouldn't be with uh, people who've demonstrated that they uh, can't responsibly have them. So you are, if you if elected, you'll be the first post 9-11 veteran in history to serve in the White House. You'll be the first, I believe, the first person who served in uniform. Uh, the younger George Bush served in the National Guard, the first yeah. veteran who had served in combat since his father, the first Bush, I believe. But your path into the military was was kind of an unusual one. Um, and I'm, it's one of the questions I am, yeah. as a service member, dying to ask you because you were mayor. Right. You, you were mayor, you had, you had gone to Harvard and you decided you want to join the Naval Reserve. Can you talk us through that experience where you walk into a recruiter's office and say, Hey, I'm the mayor and I'm here to sign up for the Navy. Like, <laughs> how, how did that go so, down? That, that's not the normal path. So yeah, right? first of all, I want to qualify my service. I, I would be the first uh, uh, war veteran since George H.W. Bush, but also uh, my service was nothing like George H.W. Bush. I mean, he undertook uh, uh, unbelievably courageous uh, actions um, as, as did his uh, generational contemporary president Kennedy. I'm, I'm not trying to put my, up with them. Um, but I do think there's some value in having a commander in chief who ha- has had that experience of being deployed into a war. Um, so I was in the reserve when I became mayor. Uh, I'd already made, made that step. Um, but uh, I remember when I, when I got to my unit and then it, it was around the time that, that I, I became mayor that, uh, uh, you know, folks have Google, like a lot of people in my unit never, they don't care. Like you don't spend a lot of time checking on what your, what your, uh, you know, fellow service members day jobs are. Um, and if anybody asked, I just say I work for the city cause I just didn't need to have that conversation. Right. Right. Then right. of course word gets around and, right. uh, and folks have fun with it. Uh, and so when the deployment happened, um, I, 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 it was really important to me that that not get out any more than it had to, because I wanted, like every reservist does, the real standard you're holding yourself to, I think as a reservist is you hope that no one can tell 
that you're a reservist versus an active duty member, right? If, if you've done your training right, then you should be interchangeable. And it's a kind of point of professional pride. Um, and for some of the people I served with, that was true. I don't think they ever understood that I had a day job, but I was in an Intel unit. People are going to Google the new guy. Right. And right. I got so much shit. I mean, they call me the, the honorable Lieutenant, right. There's a lot of that. I mean, you can imagine it's, it's inevitable and irresistible, I think. But it also makes you a high value target, right? You, you, you are more uh, valuable to the enemy if they snatch you up versus, you know, Johnny Sixpack, who might be in the, in the back of a Humvee, was that a consideration for you and for your unit? Uh, it crossed my mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'm not sure that, I mean, again, we've also got to put things in their place, right? I mean, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, um, certainly is considered very important around South Bend, Indiana. Uh, I'm not sure in the geopolitical uh, grand scheme of things. It, it, but, it but the, but the much, enemy has but, Google too. Uh, <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. And I wondered, I wondered about that. You know, we were always careful to, you know, you take your name tape off if, if you're uh, uh, with civilians and, and you don't have to uh, uh, be identified and, and tried to make sure that I cut as low a profile as I, as I could over there for, for that reason. But of course, uh, you know, mostly you're just thinking about how to make sure you're minimizing all of the different ways you're a target when you go outside the wire. And I was not, you know, I wasn't combat arms, but the reason I was outside the wire a lot was that I was, uh, I was a, a driver. We called a military Uber. I was basically responsible often for getting people and gear in my unit to the airport and back or around the city of Kabul, or occasionally we do a road trip to Bagram and back. And so you think about how to try to be comparatively low profile, um, but you're in a land cruiser, you got body armor on, uh, you can throw one of those scarves on, but you're not really fooling anybody. Right. Um, and so you just got to keep your wits about you. There were occasionally times I'd, I'd go out of uniform and, and, um, uh, uh, just have a polo shirt and kind of try to be super low profile, but, uh, that had its own sets of risks. Yeah. I know you've talked about it a bit, but do you remember the moment you actually signed the paperwork and, you know, we recognize as service members, especially at a younger age, it puts a profound sense of responsibility on people. When you sign your service members group life insurance. I remember the moment I signed my yeah. insurance and dedicated it to my nephew who was a teenager at the time. If you get killed, yeah. who's going to get the money, right? Yeah. You have to make that decision. But do you remember the moment you signed the paperwork? And, and I'm really curious about who the heck your recruiter was, right? Like, <laughs> what was the reaction of that recruiter and, and how did they handle, even as a Harvard graduate, Right. right. It's not yeah. a normal thing for someone to walk in to if you walked into a standard recruiter's office or if you did it in a yeah. different way. But that, that experience for you at the time, what did it feel like and what were you thinking? Yeah. So it was um, it was a classic story of, of ups and downs dealing with military bureaucracy. Right. So w- when I first felt that tug in, I think, 2008 and, and started talking to a recruiter, um, one of the things I I thought, I, I hoped they'd be impressed that I'd been to Harvard because I thought that would help me, you know, get accepted to the officer program. But most of all, I hoped they'd be impressed that I'd studied Arabic when I was there. Um, so I'd mentioned this to the NCO who was there at the recruiting station. Um, couldn't tell whether that really, you know, mattered to anybody or whether it was helping my package when I went in to try to get picked up for, for is it like Is it like a strip mall? You walk in the strip mall, hi, I speak yeah, Arabic. I, I yeah. speak Arabic and I went to Harvard and I like to join the Navy. I mean, I think I was probably a little cooler about it than that, but, but yeah, something like that, right? Um, and I remember a couple months later, my package got handed to a lieutenant and she said, I see that you had a minor when you were at Harvard in aerobics. Is that something you think is, is real? And I was like, oh shit. Um, and ironically, years later, I wound up as the command fitness leader in my unit. Really? So I don't know whether that was connected or not. Um, I, 
I remember so there are some of those moments where you just feel it before the deployment. I remember the moment I wrote my just in case letter and, and put it in an envelope. The moment of taking the oath actually was another classic anticlimactic big Navy moment. So I had pictured, you know, Richard Gere at the end, uh, uh, isn't it him an officer and a gentleman, right? This emotional moment, uh, or at least like, you know, me having my hand up standing next to a flag. So I'd been emailing back and forth with this recruiter as, as we were going through all the paperwork. Finally, the weekend came and um, she was out of Detroit. I was in South Bend. I traveled constantly during the week. So I had to be on the weekend or, or on a certain date. And she didn't want to come all the way to South Bend and I didn't want to go all the way to Detroit. So uh, she proposed that we meet at a big boy diner in Battle Creek or somewhere like kind of halfway between South Bend and Detroit. Uh, and then we got there and it was closed and we wound up at a coffee shop nearby. And uh, she's like, okay, well, if you want to put your right hand up and do the thing, you can. I was like, this is my moment. Like, give me my moment, you know? Um, so I'm a little jealous of friends who've managed to arrange to do their commissioning on, uh, you know, on the deck of the Intrepid here in New York or stuff like that. But uh, it was still meaningful for me. But, uh, uh, but maybe not one of those uh, kind of movie style moments, those cinematic moments that you envision when you decide you're going to go serve your country. Everybody's got their recruiting and enlistment story. Everybody thinks there's going to be F-14s flying overhead <laughs> and, and yeah. salutes by, by fireworks and all that. And it, that, yeah, exactly. that rarely happens. But Mayor Pete, going back to uh, a question that we ask of all the guests on Angry Americans, when you were growing up yep. and you were making those travels around the Midwest, yeah. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, what was your first car? Mm. So the first car I was allowed to drive was my parents' 1992 Buick LeSabre. It was blue. It was enormous. I mean, just so big. And uh, uh, obviously not the coolest kind of in my, <laughs> my parents' LeSabre. But I'll tell you, it really handled well in the snow around South Bend because there's just so much metal there. Uh, the first time I, I bought a car, it was a Taurus uh, it was a 2005 Taurus, and uh, I kept it through most of the time I was mayor. At one point, the interns nicknamed it the Chick Magnet, and that's when I realized they were making fun of me. And <laughs> but it was a good car, too. I, I don't know. I, I, uh, someday I'll get a sexy car, but uh, I'm mostly about utility. Now I got a Chevy Cruze, which is, you know. Um, I'm happy to have the beast would be a pretty sexy car. That, that is the, true. The, the vehicle yeah. that the president rolls yeah. around in. Yeah. I wonder what it has more mass to it. The beast or that LeSabre because uh, <laughs> probably be a fair fight. Well, yeah. Um, speaking of, of fight, we, we are here right now shifting gears. We've got to talk about what I think many of us in the veterans community and many in America think should be the top story in America right now and seems to be pushed to the back with the impeachment uh, drama unfolding with now the shooting in Jersey city. But this week, the Afghanistan papers were released, which basically came out in the Washington post and, and basically formally uh, confirmed for us that the government and, and government officials had been lying about the war in Afghanistan for almost two decades. Um, I, I know you're going to have policy positions on it. I know you're going to have a response in the press, but how did you feel as an Afghanistan veteran yourself when you saw that headline or you were on your phone or wherever you were, how did you feel when you got essentially confirmation the government had been lying about the war you were sent to fight in? Well, angry, um, let down. You, you go, even when you're not too sure about the politicians appointed or elected above you, you still have some, you rely on some sense that the people 
in that chain of command above you have your best interests at heart, that they care about the truth and that they're doing the, their best to do the right thing. Because I'll tell you, everybody that I was immediately around, definitely you know, my OIC and, uh, and the enlisted folks that I was in charge of were people who got up in the morning and set out to do the right thing. And to see that that broke down somewhere way, way above where we were in the chain of command. And, uh, and to think about you know, the moments when I felt like I had to weigh the consequences of the comparatively little decisions that I was making. Um, but they weren't little to me, right? I, you know, we needed to, I don't know if we needed to get some gear from Kabul to Bagram, kind of risky. Uh, I didn't have an MRAP or anything like that. I'm in an SUV. It's got its armor, but you know, uh, um, it's a risk. And I'm thinking, okay, I can take, um, I can take the gunny sergeant who has done this a whole bunch of times um, and ask him to come up with me because there got to be two long, long guns in the vehicle, right? It's got to be me plus one. And uh, I can ask him to come, but he's just a couple weeks from going home. He's got four boys at home with Mrs. Gunny, seven, eight, nine, and 10 years old. Uh, and I can ask him to do it, uh, knowing that, that he's the, the best qualified person to, to do this with me. Or I can uh, ask uh, an enlisted sailor that I know who doesn't have kids, uh, but also isn't as, as comfortable and prepared uh, doing, uh, uh, doing the kind of work that, that you need somebody to do as your eyes and ears when they're in the vehicle with you on a movement like that. And that decision only involved three people, but you feel that decision because you know the moral weight of it. And you, f- you feel so much. Um, this decision affecting that tiny number of people. And then you think that there are folks making decisions affecting thousands and thousands of people that have that same life or death quality, except multiplied by every day, every service member is deployed. And they don't have that. They don't show that same sense of seriousness about a fidelity to the truth and the calls that they've got to make. And it's infuriating. So, You've pledged to wind down the war in Afghanistan. Um, has the release of the Afghan, what's now being called the Afghanistan Papers, changed your plan if you were elected commander in chief? And for all of us who've served, for all of us in America, every president says they're going to wind down Afghanistan at this point. Why should we believe that you can actually do it? Yeah. I mean, one thing we've learned is just how difficult it is for America to unwind itself from this conflict. But we've now gotten to the point where there are people there now who were not alive on 9-11. I thought I was one of the last guys turning out the lights when I left years ago. And we're still there and we can't go on like this. And now that we see just how much fecklessness and dishonesty there was as the mission drifted from responding to 9-11 to uh, securing the, the counterterrorism environment to at times feeling like we were shouldering the responsibility for Afghan becoming a prosperous, liberal, democratic society. Uh, we've got to draw a line around what our mission objectives are. I believe that we can and must end our large-scale involvement I'm also realistic that we're probably going to have to have some kind of diplomatic intelligence and spec ops capability there for a while to make sure that it doesn't become, once again, a place where there's an attack on the American When you say a while, 
a while is a term we've heard for a while. Yeah. What does it really mean? What does it mean to the guys and gals who have done 10 tours and want to know if they're going to do 12 tours right. or 14 tours? Like you, you are a meticulous planner. Yeah. You know, your, your entire career shows, you know, tremendous foresight and, and you're a strategic leader. Um, but break it down. Like, yeah. do, do you have an act? Conditions change on the ground. Yeah, but I, mean, if, I was going to say, but, but what if I, you're elected president, yeah. what's the, you have to set expectations, right? And I think one of the things I hear about you a lot is that people say, I like him. They feel like they can trust you. But, you know, our commitments overseas are kind of where the trust of politicians goes to die. Yeah. For good so, reason. Yeah. yeah. So can right. you put more meat on the bone? And, and what's the promise you can make, especially to, to the folks in the military, about yeah. what to expect, really? Yeah. So... I'd break it down into two pieces. There's the several thousand people on the ground presence that we have now that I thought I was part of the last throes of and that we just have to wind down. Can I impose a clock on it? I can't. As a, as a political candidate, making a promise that's going to lock in my presidency isn't responsible. But what I will say is it's got to be fast. Uh, it's got to be as fast as we responsibly can in a framework that is not just going around the Afghan government to the Taliban, which is what I've observed this administration often appearing to do, uh, but one that actually has all of the relevant parties at the table. And again, we're going to have to leave aside the idea that, that we're going to be the guarantors of, of peace and prosperity but what, there. But Mayor Pete, what is fast? So fast to some people is a week, to some people in the Pentagon, fast is five years. Yeah, it, it's not going to be a week. But if this is dragging on beyond my first year, um, I'm gonna, we're going to have a problem. Uh, now, again, some kind of light footprint like we had in Syria, that, that could be years. Um, but the whole point of looking at what happened in Syria is that a remarkably small handful of people were able to form that line between what was going on and chaos. And we need to set ourselves up to where all we need is that light specialized touch to make sure things don't uh, go off the cliff versus making sure that everything, uh, trying to, to, to have these outcomes um, that we haven't been able to deliver in the better part of 20 years with thousands and thousands and thousands of people on the ground. It, it feels like you wake up some days and the world's on fire, whether it's Northern Syria, Afghanistan, Jersey City, um, and we cover a wide range of issues on this show and this community. When I asked them, you know, what makes them angry? It's, it's everything from school shootings to infrastructure to the losing ways of the New York Knicks. There's a lot to be angry about in America right now, but um, you already touched on Afghanistan. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, what makes you angry? What makes me angry is when people in a position of leadership or trust encourage those they lead to look at other human beings, often fellow Americans, as something other than human beings. Uh, I think that the root of most social evil is when a person becomes capable of looking at another person and seeing something besides humanity. And we are seeing more and more of that in our country, and it is lethal. This will not get better without a radically different. I'm not just talking about a president who ideologically agrees with me. I'm talking about a radically different understanding of the responsibilities of political leadership. And in particular, the fact that just as political leaders have the, the 
capacity to divide and frighten and frankly push us into being more fearful and small and backward looking. That the better part of leadership is the ability to do the reverse. It's harder, but you can use not just the tools, the pulleys and levers of government, but just the voice that you get in leadership to build out a sense of belonging that makes people just a little more secure, just a little more open, and just a little more decent. And time is running out for us to do that. And if we can't do that, then I am worried that the American project will meet its end in my lifetime. That's the sense of urgency I feel about this. When you look at racial divisions, when you look at the, the uh, poison that is being introduced into our politics, um, I believe we will live to see whether America rises to the occasion and gets over this uh, or whether it takes us down. I think, I think many people, especially listening now, share that concern. And um, we've wanted this show and, and this community to be on some levels, um, you know, it's a signal flare, mm-hmm. especially around the issues of national security and defense. And uh, many Americans feel that, that tremendous sense of urgency, but they also um, are concerned about what looks like a democratic field that's eating their own, mm-hmm. especially independents and unaffiliateds who, who are looking at this saying, can you all please just get your shit together and figure out who's going to take on Donald <laughs> right. Trump? There, you know, maybe there's going to be a Game of Thrones moment where you're Jon Snow or someone else becomes Jon Snow and they all rally around you. But before they do, um, the, the, the criticism you face um, often is about experience, mm-hmm. right? You, if elected, you'll be the youngest president right. in history, younger even than Teddy Roosevelt, right? Um, but when you think about the experience of the last eight months, when I was on the radio in March, I was explaining to people how to pronounce your name. Now it's December and you're leading in Iowa, you're leading in New Hampshire. Right. On a very people are still having trouble with the name a little bit. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) On a, on a very basic level, you've been living this life that is extraordinary an experience that's been extraordinary. You and and your husband have been thrust into this spotlight. I had David Bellavia on the show a couple episodes ago who had received the medal of honor and his entire world has turned upside down. He's standing at the halftime of, of, of NFL games and he's on television shows and it's this catapulting of his experience and his life in a way he never could have imagined. What has this been like for you, man? Like, how, how do you, how do you keep grounded? How do you keep up on the news? I don't know. Like I came in and talked to you. I don't know how you can even understand the 19 things that happened since we've been sitting here for, for 20 minutes, but on, on a human level, like how do you process all this from being in South Bend to now, you know, duking it out with, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in front of tens of millions of people. Yeah. Uh, it's heady. It's, uh, it's, it's an out of body experience sometimes. Uh, but, uh, a couple of things keep it from, from swamping you as a human being. Uh, the first is a team, right? So, uh, if I had to single handedly be on top of everything that was going on in the world, I would, I would break. But um, there are hundreds of people who uh, make sure that everything from uh, you know, my relationship with a county chair in Iowa who's this close to coming around to endorsing me to ensuring that we have a reasonably sophisticated understanding of the latest developments in the Afghanistan peace talks. Uh, there's somebody there who is on top of it, who knows more about it than I do, uh, and who can help me stay informed and on time and aware and make everything work. So that's part of it. Just like in, I think, any profession, certainly in the military, 
you, you got a team that, that, that can make or break you. Uh, and, and we got a fantastic team. Uh, the other thing is to have people in your life whose relationship to you doesn't revolve around politics. So that's where my marriage is so important. Chastin is going to care the exact same for me, uh, whether I'm president or not. And when we were getting into this race, when we were weighing, doing that final gut check where the, you know, our, our theory of the case checked out, the team checked out, the politics checked out. Um, and the question was just, are we really deep down ready to do this? He said, I support this if we make sure of two things that we'll always be ourselves and keep our values and we'll find some way to have some fun along the way. And, and that's what we've been able to do. Not that it hasn't been hard, both in terms of, of testing your values sometimes and in terms of testing your capacity to make it fun sometimes, but we've been able to do that. And so there are those moments when I'm at home, not to mention the dogs, right? So uh, talk about something that keeps you humble, right? Uh, they don't care. If I'm running for president, they don't care what happened in the last polls. Um, a few weeks ago, they got into some chocolate. And so, buddy, uh, Jason and I had to make sure that we, we um, basically force-fed them enough hydrogen peroxide to make them... I don't know if you know the standard procedure for if your dog gets no, into I some don't, chocolate. So, uh, please enlighten us. You need to get the chocolate out of the dog very quickly because uh, it can be toxic. And so, I'm in the backyard... Uh, we're counting number of times each one of them has puked uh, until it's satisfactory. I'm like, I won't take you into the m- most gory details, but let's just say it, it brings you right back down to earth <laughs> to go from being on national television, debating for the highest office in the land to you know, making sure your dog's okay. Um, and uh, uh, that, that's, those are kind of the moments that just uh, uh, you know, put you in your place. But it's a heady thing, uh, as it should be. We're talking about a moment of unbelievably high stakes. And when you put yourself forward at my age or at any age, obviously you're, you're, there's something very audacious about doing that. But I also think it's that coming from a younger generation is really helpful right now. Um, in fact, it's happening around the world. They just voted in a new, uh, there's a new prime minister in Finland. I think she's 34. Uh, I'd be 39 taking office, same as Macron, who is increasingly the adult in the room in a lot of these multinational <laughs> gatherings, right? Um, certainly relative, uh, in many cases, to, to the U.S. president, uh, uh, where age has not uh, turned into necessarily wisdom or, or, or judgment. Uh, New Zealand has a remarkable leader who I think uh, also younger than I would be taking office. So this has happened. Even, even the leaders that we're uh, uh, not so happy with, uh, like uh, Kim Jong-un, are younger uh, than, than 39. Uh, so... We're seeing this moment of, among world leaders, good, bad, and indifferent, uh, of, of a new generation arriving on the scene. And it's usually the kind of thing that, that the U.S. would be leading. Uh, we're playing catch-up this time. But I'll also say this from a more political standpoint. Every time my party has taken office in the last 50 years, it's been every time we've won in the White House, it's been somebody who was new on the scene and had not run for president before, somebody who had a message about bringing people together around higher values, and somebody who represented uh, advancement generationally. And I think that's important to think about because there are so many folks I talk to, not just diehard Democrats, but a lot of independents who say, you know what, I don't care which one of you it is, but it better be the one who's going to win. 
Uh, and uh, I think we, we should think about that. But the other thing that I'm trying to do in building this movement is to reach out to independents, reach out to uh, what I like to call future former Republicans, who I try to be very transparent about the fact that we're not going to agree on everything. And I'm very clear on my values and I'm not going to budge on the things we believe in. But we don't have to agree on everything uh, to agree that we need a big change. And I'm seeing a lot of people who uh, are ready to cross the aisle and be part of that new American majority. We, we're, we're getting deep into experience and, and I'm not a person who will be looking at the age necessarily of a leader. I've learned that. I think many of us who've lived a bit and especially been overseas in places like that know that heroism and leadership can come at any age. Um, but on the question of experience, there's something else that I know that there, there are only two experiences in life that you only understand if you've had them yourself and it's combat and parenthood. So do you, you have a plan for almost everything. Do you have a plan? Do you and Chastain have a plan um, for children? And if you don't, or you do, what is your answer to someone who might say, I can't vote for someone to be commander in chief who doesn't have kids? Uh, well, we're thinking about it. Uh, Chastain is designed. I think I'd like to think I'd be a decent dad. Chastain is designed to be a dad. He's like just born to do it. And so uh, it's in our future for sure. It's in the going to happen zone, as a friend of mine would put it. Um, I've made some professional choices that have complicated our ability to do it <laughs> right away, but, uh, but it's definitely in our future and, and I'm excited for it. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, talk about a whole different level from, you know, having the dogs kind of keep you down to earth um, is, uh, uh, is that kind of responsibility. Um, I'll also say that, that some of the conversations around experience in this race sort of skip over the whole thing about being in the military. And I think that is a very important experience that, that I've had, as is the experience of being mayor of a city of any size at a time when I think we're finding that local leadership is where we're increasingly raising our expectations because our expectations of Washington have collapsed. And if we can get more of the rigor that goes on in local government, you know, just the fact that you know, here's one thing to think about. You never see a local government like a city shut down the government because of a partisan disagreement. That's unthinkable. I mean, you know, cities deliver water. You need water to live. So we just figure it out. Uh, you don't get to make up your own facts. You don't get to print money. Uh, you, you just have to do things. And I think we need that attitude and orientation and leadership to come to Washington before it starts happening the other way around. In, in the last debate, I felt like you kind of clicked it up a notch because the question is, who can beat Trump? That, that, I think, is a question for people of all political parties right now. And the question of experience will be one that folks will ask about you. But the question of toughness, fight, um, you know, they go, they go low, we go high. Sometimes maybe you need to go a little lower than the Democrats have been going lately. Um, because it seems like they're often fighting each other more than they're fighting Trump. Yeah. Um, you're in New York City. He claims this is his home. There are some buildings in this borough that probably have more people in them than the entire city of South Bend, Indiana. So the, 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 the ferocity that he is used to and that he is bringing to this is different. Mm -hmm. um, why should folks believe that you can take him down? Because his tricks don't work in the same way on me. You can already tell. You know, he's got a nickname for everybody, but he can't settle on one for me. Uh, he doesn't talk about me much. Uh, 
Uh, and the reality is in order to contend with somebody like him, it's not going to work to just have like an equal and opposite version of him. First of all, morally, the implications of that are problematic, but also it doesn't work because if, if you're on his show, if you're playing his game, even when you're winning, you're losing because it's his game. And this is going to be an incredibly important discipline for the nominee to have that I intend to bring to that debate stage. In other words, when he does something wrong, you got to confront it. When he lies, you got to say what the truth is. Uh, you know, you have to return fire for sure. We also can't, we have to deny him the power to change the subject. That's been his most important power. And the reason he needs to change the subject, even if it's to himself by doing something that nobody thinks is good, the reason he keeps needing that is because he doesn't have answers on how to make our lives better. We've got an economy where the Dow Jones is off the charts. People are actually dying more and younger in the United States now. Like those two things should not even be possible to happen at the same time, but they are. Uh, it is harder and harder to be able to save for retirement and healthcare uh, and, uh, and education. Um, we have better answers on how to make life better in the everyday. And we got to make sure we have an election that's not about him, but is about you. And the more we let it be about him, the less we're talking about you. The more can, it's about you, the you, more we Can let. you do it though? Because I hear the Democrats keep saying that. Yeah. And then he pardons war criminals. And then he um, abandons the Kurds. Or he just decides to start tweeting about something else. I get the aspiration. Yeah. I get what you want to do. But it's, it's really a two-part question. Can you snatch the mic back from him? Yeah. Right? That's the hard part. And... I think a, a, an essential part of that strategy is, can you actually get the Democrats together? You know, Bernie last time took it all the way. You know, Tulsi's doing her own thing. You've literally got all these different tribes right. that are often, in my view, warring with each other more than they are with, with Trump. How are you going to do it? Like, how are you actually going to get them all together? Um, and, and maybe it's even tougher as a newcomer. Um, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, I've found in, even in local uh, government, it served me really well that I hadn't come out of any of the civil wars that produced any of my competitors or, uh, or, or some of the folks that I was dealing with, that I, that I just came from a different place. And I think that's, that's especially useful at a moment like this. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's no longer just this vague idea of a wolf at the gates, especially for Democrats. Uh, but honestly, for, for independents and, and a lot of Republicans of conscience who just hate what they're seeing in the White House, the wolf is through the gates eating our chickens. It is there. You can see what's happening. And this is a state of emergency. And in the right hands, that can have a unifying power. A third thing is you'll notice that my policies are designed to advance big solutions to big problems and do it in a way that can unify rather than polarize. So whether it's the way I'm approaching healthcare, uh, a way to make sure there's no such thing as an uninsured American, but without the division of the American people that would be associated with some of the more extreme approaches uh, or any number of other issues, what I'm doing is building that American majority, not just for political reasons, but from a governing perspective to actually get this done. In other words, I'm asking voters to measure the boldness of an idea not by how many people it can piss off, but by how much it can achieve. The bigness of an idea, not by how many trillions of dollars it costs, but by uh, what the outcomes are going to be like. 
That, in addition to the fight, look, I don't mind fighting this guy. I'm frankly looking forward to some of the contrasts we'll you, be able to draw. You, you came but, after him, especially in part by doing what he does, which was weaponizing the military rhetoric. Hmm. Like, he's a draft dodger. You went to Afghanistan. You started calling him out on that. Yeah, that, because that, he that has seems, to be called but, out on. But it, yeah. it's an amplification, right? Yeah. Part of what he has mastered is the populism. Mm-hmm. of many issues, mm-hmm. but especially of the military, of veterans issues. He says the VA is better than it's ever been. Right. And he's going to have war criminals literally right. stumping on, on the speech with him. Right. Uh, how, how much are you going to push that? How, oh, much, are you, how much are you going to really lot, push that? In a way that's, that's not about him, it's about us. So for example, we got to puncture this. Like he thinks it's pro, well, I don't think he even believes it, but he acts like it's pro-military to pardon a war criminal. And when he does that, by the way, he's playing into one of the worst slanders of service members that, that you and I hear from time to time, which is that there's no difference between a war fighter and a war criminal. So uh, he is tarnishing the uniform in countless ways, which is, of course, why the military itself doesn't have his back on this, but knows that it, w- that it was wrong. So what we do is we poke a hole in that real quickly. We show why that's not pro-military, why it's not pro-America, why it's not patriotism. But then we, we get into what patriotism is. What it means to lift up a love of country that begins with the understanding that our country is made of people. You can't love a country if you hate half of the people in it. We build a new and better patriotism than the shop-worn and thin one that he is selling. And sometimes that means a gut punch if, if you know, there's just some bullshit on his part that we got uh, to just deal with. Most of the time, uh, it means pivoting very quickly from that into what it is we're actually building so people can see that it's better. You've been redefining patriotism. You've been redefining activism. Um, you've been redefining family. You've been redefining what it means to be a Democrat. Um, you're going to be around a long time, no matter what happens next fall. But if you don't win, what do you want to do? I'm in it to win it. Uh, and I'll tell I you- I know that's that- the answer. But I know you. I know that's the answer. But yeah. but if you if you had to choose, and let's assume VP is off the table, would you rather be VA secretary or secretary of state, or go back to South Bend? I mean, have you have you thought about what you will do? You have a plan for everything. <laughs> you literally have a plan for everything, and so so what would be your plan if if you don't win? The plan is to make myself useful, and the way I see I can do that now as improbable as it is, not what I had in mind when I ran for mayor, right? Eight years ago, uh, but is to seek the presidency and use it to guide America through these changes that are coming our way. Uh, but at each turn in my life, I've thought about how to make myself useful. And sometimes that takes you to really unexpected places. I, I never would have thought that making myself useful involved uh, going home to South Bend. I mean, the whole time I was growing up, the message in a place like South Bend was, if you want to make something of yourself, get out which is what I did, uh, only to realize the more time I, I spent after I left that I belonged, that I was from somewhere and I had to go back. Uh, and in the same way, it, it took some time for me to understand why it was so important that I make myself useful in my country's uniform. Uh, you never know what that's going to mean a year or five or 10 years from now, uh, whether it's as president, as ex-president or as something else. Um, but what I know is that we're at this moment where the, the condition of the country and the demands of the office call for something different. 
And I believe it's exactly what I have to offer. And my job is to get out there and talk to as many voters as possible. And if they agree with me, then, uh, uh, then comes the hard part where I have to go make good on it. I appreciate that. But I also don't think you're up there going, VA secretary would be as cool as being secretary of state, right? Like there, 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 is, a, there, there is a landscape out there that um, I think is important for people who are looking at government service, who are looking at politics to understand um, because the longevity of you is in part what I think inspires a lot of people too. Yeah. You, you, in many ways, you're, you're going to inherit the kind of moderate um, constituency that Biden's got. At some point, Biden's going to be gone. And a lot of those folks who are looking for a more moderate place in the Democratic Party and beyond are going to look to you for, for leadership. And you have an opportunity to really inherit, I think, that, that mantle, um, especially for folks who, who aren't Democrats and will never be Democrats and will yeah. never leave the right. Republican Party. Yeah. So you know, they're going to look for, and maybe I'm, I want to take yeah. this to a place because it gets to competence. Yeah. And that's one issue that Democrats have often had a challenge with is, is governing. And maybe the best example for the veterans in the room, especially the VA. Hmm. I have been very critical of, of Barack Obama. I think he blew it on the VA. The entire Obama administration, the only uh, cabinet level secretary to resign in scandal was Eric Shinseki, the secretary of the VA. So I think in many ways, the VA can be the place for Democrats to prove government works yeah. or to show that government doesn't work. When it's great, it's the GI Bill. When it's bad, it's the Phoenix scandal. Right. So I, I want to make sure, at least on behalf of the veterans, I ask you, I've heard your plan on VA. I think you're detailed. You're being thoughtful about it. But leadership matters, mm -hmm. especially in that job. So are there any names on your short list that you can share for who would be the secretary of VA if you're elected president? No names, but I'll tell you the qualifications I'm after. I know you're um, going to tell me that. Yeah. But no, it wouldn't but, be it wouldn't be responsible for but, me to name names right now, but but I'll tell you the kind of person we need. Okay. Please. We need somebody first of all who is completely committed to the mission and is not interested in pleasing some of the constituency. You know, right now you see under under this president, right? A lot of folks who see this as an area where they can get a slice and and benefit uh personally. And they have the ear of those who are making policy around veterans. I'm looking for somebody whose only commitment is to veterans and to the country. I'm looking for somebody who has demonstrated that they know how to undertake really complicated organizational challenges. I'm looking for somebody who's going to tell the truth because one of the biggest problems that can happen in a government unit, a business, certainly in a military unit, is when somebody doesn't want to tell the commander the bad news. Right? And there's going to be more bad news before there's more good news in a lot of the stuff going on over there. Uh, and I'm looking for somebody, and there are different ways you can do it, but who has authenticated those, those other things I was just talking about by the choices they've made at difficult moments in their life. And I can, there are plenty of people out there who might be up to it. There may be some people I've not yet met who could be up to it. Uh, but what I'll tell you is that this can't be... Uh, left off to the side any longer because this is how America keeps a promise that is supposed to be a two-way promise between those who serve and the United States. And that promise is supposed to last a lifetime and we've got to do better. I think it's important that people understand. I think it's often overlooked that you're redefining many things, but you're also redefining what it means to be a veteran. You're smart. You're thoughtful. You're a, uh, you're a well-educated person. You're not just shooting guns and blowing stuff up and throwing punches. There is a negative stereotype of veterans yeah. that we are either 
you know, incredible soaring uh, pillars of, of superherodom or that were broken and, yes. and, and were, were conned, right? Somehow we got conned into the military and right. we all love George Bush. We all love right. um, Donald Trump, but you've really redefined and shown a dynamism that I think is very, very important. And I want you to know that from me and from many of us who see that um, showing that we can do anything. And I think older generations maybe understood that, but, but especially right now with the civil military, military divide where it is, you are redefining in such an important way what it means to be a veteran. Um, and I think you're a social movement leader beyond the politics, the way you're influencing kids and the way you're showing people what's possible is really at the core of what the American dream is supposed to be all about. And that I know is what's bringing a lot of people to you, but you also bring a positivity that is infectious. I see it around your team. I see it on your social media. I see it in your husband. There is an energy of positivity. So the, the last question I ask of all of our guests is P. Judge, what makes you happy? Hmm. Um, being around people that I love uh, and, uh, and coming to know things that are lovable in people that, uh, that I, I've either just met or that I didn't see it before. Um, look, the world, the city, the country, uh, it's made of people. And the reality is that every human being is capable of a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. And what matters in leadership is what it draws out of us. And one of the extraordinary things that happens in a political campaign, especially the, the kind of hands-on part where you're out there just meeting folks and having the experience sometimes hundreds of times a day of somebody coming up to you and, and mentioning whatever is the most important thing in their lives gives you a sense of, of, of what people care about. And they're just these flickers where you see what makes uh, somebody wonderful. And, uh, you know, I get it the most when I'm at home uh, with, with Chaston and, and, and with, with friends and, and with family. But um, sometimes I get to see it in strangers too. Uh, and, that just fills me with happiness. And it fills other people with happiness. And I think it's, it's coming at a time where um, politics is not a place we go for happiness. Right. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> we got to change that, right? Because yeah. politics will be what we make of it. Yeah. And right now it sucks. And if we allow that to continue, um, it, it's going to, it's just going to snowball. Um, it's up to us. People forget that. Like it is completely up to us. And now's the time, like there's never been, certainly in my lifetime, to shift this and turn it around. And it's, it's not, uh, that kind of sense of hope is not from my youth. It's from my experience. It's from seeing that uh, uh, huge changes are possible if you have the right level of awareness and energy and courage. And I see a moment shaping up that as bleak as our politics can be in 2019, that we could set ourselves up so we could look back at 2020 and, and actually feel some measure of pride. There's an event happening this weekend that gives America a special pride. And it's when army plays Navy. It's, <laughs> it's the one time when I think people say the Cowboys are America's team. I think that's bullshit. Army and Navy are America's team. And all you Cowboy fans can take a seat, okay? <laughs> because they really are. And we'll see that this weekend, right? It's about yeah. the purity of sport and it's about uh, patriotism in its best form, but it's also about student athletes and it's about leadership. Right. And it's kind of the one game where everybody's rooting for both sides. 
Yeah. Um, and I'm going to be rooting for Army. Clearly. You're going to be rooting for Navy. Navy's got to win. Um, you said you've, you've never been, but do you, are you going to make a prediction? Ooh, uh, I mean, I got to go Navy all the way, right? Uh, uh, it uh, uh, feels like a good year for Navy. It is a good year for Navy. I mean, as you know, rooting for Notre Dame, every time Navy comes to town, you're nervous. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because they always bring their best game. And they got this unique offense. Uh, uh, it's, it's fun to watch. And uh, uh, yeah, I feel good. We'll it's, a, it's a gift to America every weekend. It is. And I hope folks will, will watch it and enjoy it, even if you're not a sports fan. I hope you go. Um, One of these days, I hope I get yeah, to go. If, well, if yeah. you're not going this year, then you may be going for the first time as Commander-in-Chief next year. Sounds like a um, great way to arrive. Trump's going this weekend. It'll be interesting to see if Navy boos him after all the shit he's done to the Navy in the last couple of weeks. They won't boo him. They'll keep their know. military bearing, yeah. but he will be there. Um, but America will be watching and it will be a gift, which takes me to our last point, which is the giving of the gifts. Huh? This is part of the tradition. And your staff probably didn't fully brief you on this, um, but we give every guest three gifts, three kinds of gifts since the beginning of the show. And as we thank you for many things, I want to present you with a couple of gifts. The first is some American made by the veterans of Oscar Mike, nice angry Americans merchandise made in the USA. You guys can give it up for Oscar Mike. Give it up for veterans unless you hate America. Thank you very much. It's a good workout um, shirt. I like it. Uh, and then the other quiz I was informing your staff about is since the show started around Easter, mm. you're our 37th guest or our 37th episode. We've asked every single one to choose. If you had to choose a color of peeps. Wow. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, yellow, blue, or pink, and why? That's got to be yellow. Yeah. Why? Well, accuracy for one thing. I mean, right? Accuracy. Yeah, it's yellow. That's such a Mayor Ooh, Pete answer. Birds That's are it. yellow, right? <laughs> Those kinds of birds, I assume. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna go, plus, like, uh, you know, this, you got to start with the basics, like like the fundamental peep, right? Like, is, like if you had to pick one for the dictionary picture, it's going to be yellow, right? Sarah Probably. Jessica Parker called them the OG of peeps. There you go. And I think your answer is a close second. <laughs> that was a very good answer. And lastly, um, every show, we talk Ooh. a little bit about whiskey. Oh, and good. I go to the same liquor store and I look on the shelves for something that inspires me, given our guest. Now, I don't know if you know about this brand. I this is not. called Clyde May's Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Oh. And the reason I chose it is because you're a man of precision and attention to detail. If you look in the fine print, it's the only whiskey I've ever seen that's distilled in Indiana. There you have it. Did you know about that? I did not. We've got a great uh, place in South, veteran-owned business in South Bend, actually, called Indiana Whiskey, but probably hasn't made its way to the shelves around here yet. This looks, uh, that's, look at that color on that. That it's looks good. great. So going forward, that may be your All beverage right. of choice than McAllen especially if sanctions make it too expensive for Americans to consume in the next couple of months. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. That looks um, good. But looking forward to that. Mayor P. Buttigieg, I, I want to thank you most of all for your leadership. You know, in the army, we learn about leadership being about duty and respect and selfless service and outside of politics. I think you've been putting your butt on the line and you've been showing the kind of courage that Americans root for. And no matter if they're Republicans, Democrats, everything in between, and even, even if they don't vote for you, I think all of America is rooting for you. And, it, and it's good to have someone to root for. 
uh, and I'm very, very grateful for your leadership, grateful for your candor and your time and wish you all the best. And thank you for joining us here on, on Angry Americans today. Well, thanks. It was a great visit. I appreciate it. And thanks for your work. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That was a fun one, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you do, please share it with your friends and subscribe now if you haven't already. And my thanks to Mayor Pete and his entire team. They're an awesome group of people, and it's going to be fun to see what he does in the years ahead. My thanks to our friends at the Classic Car Club, which hosted us that day, and to everybody who came out. Of course, to the Righteous Media team, Mighty Mercy Rich, Creative Chris Rosenthal, Brilliant Bill Schultz. Thanks to our friends at Uncle Nearest, the best whiskey in America, which you should definitely check out. Thanks to our vigilant Patreon members. And as always, thank you to my family, my wife, my two boys. Ryder's fifth birthday was awesome. We had lots of chocolate chip pancakes, lots of octane not toys two real monster trucks thanks to my friend greg thanks greg uh rider had his family he had his favorite cousin and an all-around awesome day we made the most of it just like we got to do every day until the election in this pandemic and until we can get our country back on the right track so definitely keep the feedback coming on social media i see you i hear you i'm with you go to angryamericans.us sign up for our newsletter check us out on social media and our youtube page we will adapt improvise and overcome lots of great guests coming up stay tuned subscribe for free and share you can always use a shortcut getangry.us share it with all your friends especially as we go into the election we're going to dive deep and approach it from an independent and fresh perspective you won't get anywhere else and together we're going to keep this movement growing week by week by week It's okay to be angry, especially now. And no, you are not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. But together, we can turn that anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Please wear a mask. Enjoy the madness of the conventions and the final weeks of summer as best you can. Wherever you are, stay frosty and stay vigilant, America. America.